Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. This is Amy Bird, and I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Todd Pruitt and Carl Truman. And I'm real excited today that we're talking to Lydia Brownback. She's an author and a speaker, and her latest book, we're real excited to talk about, is Finding God in My Loneliness. You might also know her from her book, Find China is for Single Women Too. Hi, Lydia. How are you doing? Great to be here today, Amy. Yeah. Um, so I was, when I saw your latest book, I always notice when you've written a new book because I like your writing. Thanks. I thought, wow, now that is an interesting title. And I know you've written about being single, and so many people love your writing on that. But um, when I read the title, Finding God in My Loneliness, I knew because of the title that that's not what you were writing about. Like, and right away I could tell in the, um, table of contents. Now, these are some really interesting topics, like the loneliness of leaving, the loneliness of night, the loneliness of obedience. I mean, there's just so many neat topics here that you talk about that everyone has experienced in one way or another. My first question is, I just kind of wanted to throw out there a statement that you make right in the beginning of the book, that there's a difference between loneliness and being alone. Could you explain that for us? Yeah. You know, if you think about it, you can have people who are, who love isolation. They love solitude. They're introverts Mm -hmm. and they never feel lonely. And then there's others who can be in a crowded room, crowded people living in a big family and they feel utterly lonely. So they are distinct and they can certainly overlap. Right. I think they're two distinct categories. Yeah. I mean, you said something that I have noticed myself you said some of the loneliest people you know aren't singles, but those who are suffering in a difficult marriage. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When Crossway was releasing this book, they filmed some video and they released it in little clips. And they released this one on that statement you just made about the loneliest people are often not the single people. They're people, married people in difficult marriage or just married people uh, struggling for one reason or another. And and that clip got like 6,000 views in one day. Wow. And it, it just sort of proved the point that I think it's an issue that it's prevalent, but it's not talked about because one, I think married women feel guilty. Married people feel guilty if they mention the fact that they feel lonely right? and they feel like they're betraying their spouse or they wonder what's wrong with me. I have this husband. God gave me a husband. Why should I, or a wife, why should I feel lonely? And so they're made to feel even lonelier by the fact that they feel they can't talk about it. They have Mm -hmm. to hide it. Whereas with single people, people expect them to be lonely. And so it's not something that needs to be hidden or they feel needs to be hidden. So it's true. You know, one of the things I mentioned in the book is that, you know, and Amy, you you live long enough. And that's one of the things that you discover as the decades Mm -hmm. go on is the myth that marriage is going to solve all your problems. And think about this. It's so lonely, I think, for a woman and I'm speaking for women since I am one, but you know, the people I've talked to over the years who are going through a bad patch in their marriage, 
and they have to go to sleep next to somebody they're, they're not able to communicate with. Yeah. And that's such a lonely feeling. Yeah. I mean, I even remember early in my marriage, you know, there, there weren't any real troubles in our marriage, but I got married so young at 21 years old that I really had to mature through thinking, oh, he's not supposed to actually meet all of my needs and complete me like Jerry Maguire said, but that, you know, we find that treasure in Christ. And until we know that, we're still going to be lonely. Yeah, exactly. Um, early in my marriage, uh, my wife and I have been married for almost 27 years. And in our first two years or so, she would say it was incredibly difficult because I stopped talking, really. And it broke my heart when I found out that she was lonely, you know, that she was married to me and now suddenly she was lonely. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that I didn't know how to deal with the stress of being in ministry right out of college. And so I would come home overwhelmed and just wanting to study and wanting to get things ready. And what I found is that I was utterly neglecting uh, my wife's emotional needs in that way. And, and I found that that's not unusual for women who are married to ministers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, since, since that time, Karen and I have talked to a lot of different pastors' wives, ministers' wives, who've kind of been widowed by the ministry a husband who is very engaged with the emotional needs of his congregation. And then not out of malice, but he simply spins himself completely on people other than his wife and then has nothing left to give her. And so she lives this very lonely existence. Well, with, and Todd, at least you, husband. she felt she could come to you and talk to you about it. Yeah. And you, you dealt with it. You felt grief over that yeah. and you realized that you took it in. And so you were able to then together start working on it. Mm-hmm. And I think in many cases, a wife will address that issue, but her husband feels so overwhelmed by ministry yeah. that he doesn't know how to do anything differently from what he's been doing. Right. And the problem just continues, even though he does feel bad, he doesn't know yeah. how to solve the problem or make a change. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you think that technology is a help or a hindrance when it comes to loneliness, Lydia? You know, I think that that can go either way. Uh, some of us find it stimulating. I love to connect with people electronically. I do think, though, that it does it, it can create some isolation in that we do mistake that kind of our virtual communicating for the real thing. And then it's also easy to duck out when we don't like it. When we we, mm-hmm. we have these, whether we're on Facebook or Twitter or, or even email, we have these sort of one-dimensional conversations and we perceive them as relational, but we don't have to rub up against people in face-to-face work through conflict. We can send all capital letter emails and <laughs> if we're frustrated, but we can also just check out. So I think it's created a whole new category of relationship that isn't the same thing as a real relationship. So people are lonelier, but they can't quite put their finger on that as a contributing factor as to why these one dimensional relationships. So I guess to answer your question, I say I think it's actually enhanced loneliness rather than diminished it. Mm, Interesting. I've had conversations with with men. I have a hunch just based on my experience in pastoral ministry. I have a hunch that more and more men are struggling with loneliness, but they either don't know how to articulate that or they're not maybe aware that what's bothering them is actually loneliness, Mm -hmm. a lack of close companionship from other males. And I I think the three of us may have talked about this before, but I'm wondering what your thoughts would be, Lydia. I think with the kind of the sexualization of everything now, 
that oftentimes men find it awkward to move close to each other, whereas in past generations it didn't feel as awkward. So if you know, if you look at the letter writing of 19th century males, yeah. you'll find them writing things to each other that we would look at today and maybe be uncomfortable with because it's very it's the language of personal affection. Yeah. Um, of course, was not sexualized at that time, mm-hmm. but I will look at that and try to think if I have any categories for that deep of a friendship in my life, and I tend to come up short on that, and I wonder what all the contributing factors are, but my hunch is that we've got a lot of men who are very much struggling with loneliness, but either don't know that that's what it is, or they just they don't want to articulate that that's what's bothering them. I think both are true. Uh, your point about the sexualization of everything, so true. That goes for women as well. I had a, mm-hmm. a friend a few years ago suggest that we buy a place to live together. Mm-hmm. And I said, no way in a million years would I do that because yeah. what will people think? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I think it is an issue for women as well as men, but especially for men. The sexualization of our culture, I think, impacts them even more deeply. And then you add to that the fact that loneliness can be such a nebulous thing. It is hard to put your finger on what it is you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And so even if you can put your finger on it, men don't emote in the same way. They don't talk about it. And right down to the fact that even though this book is for women, when Crossway suggested this title, I was a little hesitant thinking, who's going to read this on the train without a brown paper bag around it? (laughs) You know, and and if women feel that way, you know, men even more so, I imagine, and being able to discuss loneliness and or again to be able to define it without some serious discussion to get to the root of what it is and uh, that's what just doesn't happen as much that's what i really appreciate about this book because it is such a nebulous emotion maybe but you really home in on the particular areas where everyone feels loneliness and one i really liked was when you were talking about kind of periods of loneliness that we might have in our lives. Maybe it's because we moved away or maybe it's, you know, changing jobs or um, you know, all these different times. And you kind of discuss Joseph in that section, but you make this statement that I so appreciated that lonely times are preparatory times. Yeah. I mean, think about, if we think about every lonely season we can reflect on in our own lives, and we can see in hindsight how God was using it to prepare us for something else. Mm-hmm. And lonely seasons can be preparatory, and they should be preparatory. Right. Yeah. One thing I, I thought about immediately was, um, that's how I became a writer, was through a very lonely season in my life. We had just moved to West Virginia, and I'd gone from having this really great women's Bible study where just no one in there was a small talker, you know? So we, we just delved into so many theological questions. I learned so many foundational things there. And then I moved to a church where it was a lot harder to get connected and we eventually did, but it it took a longer time and uh, I didn't have as many women, maybe my age and my station of life kind of thing. And then the parents of my children's, friends. I made good friendships and they were at different churches, but I found that they were very socially Christian and moral, but not having much of a theology behind, you know, why they believed what they believed. So it was such a lonely time for me to have small kids, my husband commuting and just 
having lost that network of people that I could really talk to in a stimulating way about theology and all the books that I was reading and they were reading and, and all these things. And that fueled me to write then because I thought, wow, you know, what if I had a tool I could use to help women think about how theology affected their everyday life? Yeah, that's so great that you had that experience from that, because I do think that that is one of the hidden blessings of loneliness. God uses it redemptively if mm-hmm. we're willing for that, and if we will look to Him and cling to Him, right? And that's mm-hmm. when we will find, by clinging to Him, where He wants to take us and what He might bring out of it. In the same way, we think about Paul and his thorn and his pleading for removal right. of that thorn, and what he got instead was this great strength and grace that was worked into him. So instead of it being something to solve, a problem to solve, it became something that was useful without it being removed. And maybe that's kind of what you're talking about right. here, and or at least how God yeah, used exactly. those things. And, and to your point about relocating and how that's such a huge aspect of loneliness today, I think, because mm-hmm. in our transitory society, people are starting over more than once in a lifetime. You know, you remember back in the days when people would be born in a town and they would grow up there and they would raise their family there and they'd work there. Pay off their mortgage. (laughs) Exactly. And so I think today with the freedoms and choices we have to go so many places, there's less commitment to a place and a people and a church. Mm. And so if we don't like something, we pick up and go. Or if something's better, we pick up and go. Better opportunities. But we find when we get there, that relocation is one of the most difficult things we ever go through. You experienced it, and it's it's not about having to find a new grocery store. And that's what so many people think the challenge of a move is going to be. It's what you described as almost it's sort of a loss of identity in a way that we didn't even know what defined us before. Well, until and history with people, it. yeah. Yeah, and missing out on the being able to connect theologically that I think can be so isolating. When you know mm-hmm. there are fellow believers, but you cannot relate and connect. And when you try, it's a brick wall. And it not because anyone's being obtuse, it's just because you're from a very different right. world. And it can be one of the loneliest experiences for believers, I think. Yeah. Lydia, oftentimes we'll meet people in a church who struggle with loneliness. They feel lonely. And sometimes that can turn into anger and resentment in the heart, you know, why haven't these people done more to reach out to me? And sometimes that is the case. Sometimes churches do a terrible job at reaching out to someone who is alone or who is lonely, and, and there's certainly room for correction there. But I wonder, how would you counsel someone? They're, they're in a church every week. They feel terribly alone. How would you counsel them? Where, where should they go with that struggle? What should they do? You know, I I think there has been a lot of criticism leveled at churches for not helping lonely people feel more included. And yet some of that's unfair Mm -hmm. in that people will come into a church and they'll never return because no one greeted them. No one reached out to them. But what did they do? What did they do to reach out to say, I'm new here. Can you direct me? Can you help me? They expect a church to recognize them, to include them, to do all the the heavy lifting. And Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that's fair. And I tell this to other single people a lot that when you go into a church, don't expect the church to be your answer to everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's God's provision for you, but they are not going to become a surrogate spouse. They're not going to become your parents. You need to get involved and to to make some effort and take some initiative. And it, it goes both ways. Some of the struggle, I think, can be when churches... Some of them are so family, nuclear family oriented yeah. mm-hmm. that single people or widow, divorce, anyone who's, who's solitary can feel odd and they feel like they don't have a place or where do they plug in. 
And churches, I think, are now that there are more single people than ever coming into churches, I, I'm watching many make changes to include them yeah. and to not just say, plug into this demographic group, this is where you belong. Right. And that's a fact to the people who are alone and going into a church. Don't necessarily just look for your own demographic group. Instead, know your spiritual gifts. Find a place to serve, regardless of whether you think it's going to meet a need in your life in terms of singles or right. even friendship. By getting involved in church as church as a whole, you're going to make friends. It's meant to be a family. And that's what I tell them. Get involved regardless of the ministry and find something that you like to do that you're good at. Plug in there and the friendships will come. And so will the close connections, the intimacy that you're creating, that sort of family feel. So I do think sometimes singles expect the church to do more than the church can do. And yeah. they need to take a little more initiative, especially the older singles. Yeah. That touches on something I heard a PCA pastor say recently when commenting on the language of community. He said that for, in his experience, anybody under the age of 35 who was using the language of community was typically referring to something akin to a college dorm atmosphere. Hmm. And that struck me as an interesting observation. And I like the emphasis uh, you placed on on sort of transgenerational connections within the church. Yeah, I mean, the demographics today, we have the singles groups for the older singles and the younger yeah. singles, and there's the college group and the high school group, and <laughs> then there's the Sunday school class for married couples, and then there's the Sunday school class yeah. for married couples with no kids, and then there's the, the seniors <laughs> class. And you have you know the, the luncheon for the, the single mom, and there's just these demographic breakdowns and when you come into a new church, you're often directed to the one that best fits you. And I do think that takes away from the sense of, of the family structure that a church is meant to be with old and young mm -hmm. and single and married together. And I, I think about my own Sunday school class. I love it. It's almost like a microcosm of church. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's about 100 people in there. And there are the elderly and there's college students and a couple high school students and married and single and young and old, male and female, and everyone is just there because we're gathered for the same purpose. Mm -hmm. And so we have lunch together, we do, and friendships form and it doesn't, the demographics don't matter. Mm -hmm. So I do think that as churches, and sometimes I think that's why smaller churches do better because larger churches often, just for people to get to know others, they have to find some way to to break things down right. into smaller subgroups, but that they do it by demographic too much instead of by other categories, areas of service, that kind of thing. Right. People just get stuck in their demographic group and they don't get to know the larger body of the church. Right. They don't serve the whole church and they're not served by the whole church. And it, it keeps the fragmentation. It just creates a fragmented structure. And that's I mean, you're pastors, you know better than I, but that's my observation. Yeah, and unfortunately, oftentimes, it's that very fragmentation and dividing up people into all of these different niche groups. The, the reason why it's done so often is because, quote unquote, it works. I mean, you can grow a church by putting people in a situation where they never have to deal with anybody who's not just like them, and except that that's not how the church ought to grow, you know, and it's typically just, just by by force of requirement that the smaller church doesn't do that because if they split up everybody into a little niche group, each group would have one or two people in it. Well, nobody wants that. But the point is, is that oftentimes big churches get big just because they pander to my undisciplined desire to just be with people who are just like me. 
Sure, you're right. And and that's not good. Well, and in that situation, when I moved to West Virginia, the first welcoming group that I felt so connected to there was all women who were well over retirement age who did a Bible study together on Tuesday mornings. And uh, it started out as like a Daughters of Naomi mm-hmm. <laughs> group for, for widows. And then they, quote unquote, opened it up to the rest of the mm-hmm. church. But really, that just meant everyone else who's retired because it was Tuesday mornings <laughs> and right. no childcare. But um, once my children were in school, I was invited to come. And just that invitation, you know, that invitation got me there. And those women were gems. Like, I'm like, oh, my gosh, here's all the gems of the church meeting in the basement mm-hmm. <laughs> on Tuesday mornings. So it was, it was a blessing. When I think about how what's been encouraging going into churches is when, when people will, you take initiative. I tell single people, take initiative, go out there, plug in, find something. Even if you haven't been invited, go. But when you mm-hmm. are invited, definitely go. And what is so helpful that I, I love when a church invites me to something, not because I fit the bill, you know, but because right, I'm part, yeah. because I'm going to the church, right. and and so you talk about church growth, and so as to your point, so many people are thinking about numbers. Let's think about spiritual growth, and so I love when people invite me to something or include me, not because I'm single, not because I write books, not because of any of that, but just because I'm part of the fellowship, right. and they want to gather people there. That is more encouraging than anything else, mm-hmm. and that sounds like what you're describing, Amy. Right? Yeah, and it was it really reminded me too. Now as I'm getting older. That um, to in, to extend invitations because sometimes you think oh you know they wouldn't want you know to get it. I've got teenagers now who wants to be involved in that crazy lifestyle at my house you know but it's amazing how many people maybe it's just because they like to see you know me all stressed out running from place to place I don't know but it's amazing even younger high schoolers are happy to be a part of that. Yeah, I think everybody loves to be invited. So isn't that something we can do in our own church? Look around. You know, I think about my elderly mother who goes to her big church and her goal each week is to reach out to one person who's alone. Mm. And she does. God always sends someone across her path and she'll just go over and introduce herself and say hello. And that to me is, is so significant. And whether it's an invitation just to a greeting, welcome here, or an invitation to a Bible study or, or to a luncheon, we go in the church can reach out to those we see and we can also accept the invitations of those who ask us. So that is something the whole church can participate in. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit. It's kind of moving backwards a little bit because when you were talking about Joseph in your book, you were talking about the loneliness of obedience. Mm-hmm. And that also made me think of a couple different times in my life. Wow. Those are sometimes really lonely times when God is calling you to obedience in a certain area where you know you're kind of going to be the odd man out or you're not going to be looked at um, favorably anymore by you know people you love and care about. Those can be really lonely times. And, and that's something you notice more in hindsight, I think. Yeah. So I thought <laughs> it was really helpful for you to have like a whole chapter talking about that. Well, thank you. You know, it's true, isn't it? That sometimes our expectations of, you know, we're, we're being obedient, we're following the Lord, we're sticking with scripture, and it's costly. And we so much in American evangelicalism, we have our eye out for what blessing we're going to get for obedience. And sometimes it's actually going to take us into the opposite path for a season. And yes, we'll know the comfort of the Lord, but it can be costly in, in human ways. Definitely. 
Yeah, I mean, I thought it was very preparatory, that chapter or that section where you wrote about that, because I think that's something that sometimes if we're not prepared to make that sacrifice, we're either disappointed in God, we think something isn't right, or maybe we, we don't obey. Uh, uh, that sort of takes me to where I was was going to take the conversation. Lydia, one of the, perhaps the hallmark of contemporary culture is, I think, the idea that, that personhood is primarily constituted by sexual activity. So for a Christian to be obedient and to restrict sexual activity to the the bounds of a marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime means that those who aren't married are, by the world standards, less than whole people. How does the church help such people? How does the church counteract that kind of wicked mythology that has such a grip of the popular imagination and is so, you know, it's reinforced by everything from commercials to sitcoms to soap operas. How is the church best designed to to combat that that wicked modern myth? Wow, I'm sure you as pastors, that is one of your greatest challenges right That's now. That's why I'm asking and, the question. I hope you can <laughs> yeah. give me the answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I think when I, people ask me about that as a single person, um, you know, and I think what encourages me is to think about those in scripture, Paul, Jesus, and how they were as whole as it gets. And they weren't sexually active, at least Paul wasn't at the time we know of him. You know, those I think about today struggling with same-sex attraction and how they feel, well, God has doomed me to this if I'm going to be faithful, I have to, I'm doomed to this life of no sexual activity of being alone. And I want to say, well, you know, singles have been dealing with that same thing for thousands of years. Mm. And whether it's same sex attraction or heterosexual attraction, it, you know, it's not the end of the world. And I think, you know, who says that it's to make too much of sex and to mm. say that if you don't have that, you're lacking something. Because if that were the case, if Jesus is the perfect, complete, whole individual, would have been sexually active. If right. that was a necessary part of being human. It's not. And our culture has made it seem like something that's not optional. But for the church just to be able to go in there and say wholeness has nothing to do with acting out your sexuality and or even how you you want to identify yourself. That's not your identity is Christ. And so it's, I think, just refocusing that identity onto the person of Christ and off of sexuality at all in the sense of self-definition. Yeah. You know, I speak into that one limited aspect of it as a single person, single heterosexual person, you find that it's not everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, after decades of that, you just realize personally, you live out that it's not everything, that there are things that are that are much more important in life and that matter more and that will continue to matter more as you focus on Christ. So for the church just to include and bring in people for who they are in Christ You know, I think one of the things that's really disturbed me, and I'm seeing what you've talked about, Carl, is is when people want to define themselves as I'm a gay Christian or I am a such and such Christian, and they include their sexual identity as part of their Christian identity, and they can't separate the two. Mm -hmm. And so it's a category mistake in, in being able to even think of themselves or wanting to define themselves in that way. So they're setting themselves up for misery. And uh, I think it's missing out on the richness that fully identifying with Christ and in Christ is meant to be. And that's a rambling answer, but that's, <laughs> those are my passionate thoughts about it. Lydia, how would you counsel someone who desperately wants to be married? They're single. 
it, it's getting to a point maybe where they're really frustrated, possibly risking some, some foolish choices because of their frustration, because of their desperation. What is that single person who's not married yet, but desperately wants to, what do they need to hear at that time in their life? You know, and I, I tell people at times, it's easier to be single at 50 than it is at 28. Mm-hmm. And at 28, in that decade of life, you're watching your friends get married, and you're not. And the pressure is greater. You're feeling left out and left behind. And so the panic can set in. And that is the season of life where people are most prone to act in panic. Yeah. You know, by the time you get a little older, and you're still single, you've come to find that there's a fullness of life that isn't that doesn't hinge on getting married. You know, I remember years ago, I told a great aunt uh, at the time that I would rather be dead than single. And she burst out laughing. She was in her 80s at the time. And <laughs> I, you know, it was seemed so patronizing to me then, but I see now what she was getting at. And it's when we're younger, we do feel like it's marriage or death. Right. I don't want to sound patronizing like my aunt did at the time to young people listening now. Mm. But and that's not much comfort to say, well, just wait a few years, we'll feel better about it. So that that's really not the answer, even though it is a reality. It's to say that if God has kept you unmarried today, that he, nothing has slipped through the cracks. He hasn't forgotten you, and he's still sovereign. Yeah. And that is why we don't have to look at statistics that say at a certain point in life, if you haven't found a spouse, your chances of getting struck by lightning are greater than getting married. Mm. That's not true, because since God is sovereign, he loves to show his sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if he has determined and decided that his call on your life, you're best going to serve him and grow in holiness by being married, he's going to see to it that you get married. Mm-hmm. And if not, then not. Yeah. But either way, what the life he has designed for you is perfect, is good and acceptable and perfect. Yeah. And therefore, it's about deciding whether you're willing to entrust that area of life into God's loving, kind, powerful hands or whether you're going to wrest that control, try to wrest that control from him and take matters into your own hands, which never works. And there's always disappointment when we do that, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's choosing to trust that a good, kind father is controlling your destiny and follow him and make use of every biblical opportunity you have and be wise in your approach. Bring in the church, bring in your pastor and elders, bring in your friends and get input on that. But don't put life on hold until that day comes. Get busy with life. Serve God and see what happens. That's that's faith. Yeah, you have an excellent chapter on the loneliness of being married. And you have another one on the loneliness of marriage. But bouncing off of what you just said, I wanted to read something that you wrote, which I found very helpful. Right after talking about being single and lonely, you say, no pity, please. Um yeah that singles are not to be pitied. And you say the fruit of our faith will be evidenced in the way we talk about our singleness. We'll find that we can be appropriately honest about our difficulties and our longings in such a way as to convey that as much as we'd love to be married, that dream isn't the substance of our hope. We practice what we're told in God's word. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works from Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. I just thought that that was such an encouragement to read, not only for singles, but for marrieds as well. It's true, right? I mean, no matter our situation, what our unwanted situation might be, 
There's no need for pity because that isn't the source of our hope. Our situation isn't where we set our hope. We don't look for answers there. And whether it's going well or going poorly, whether it's what we want or what we don't, our hope is something completely outside of that. Right. And if we can remember that, it puts the problem, the difficulty in its right perspective. And then it's still a difficulty, right. but it doesn't have this overarching power to dominate our hearts and our lives and our mood. Mm-hmm. Um, One other thing I wanted to talk about before we close our conversation is something you talk about at the beginning of the book, which I found to be, wow, we could talk about this forever, really, is um, you kind of introduce how today's many freedoms contribute to our loneliness. And this doesn't matter what status of life you're in, I don't think. It's just we all live in a time where we have so many choices. And yet sometimes that can make us more lonely because we put our treasures in different things. Yeah, we do. We look around for what we think is going to meet our needs and we fixate horizontally and we try to apprehend some earthly treasure, whether it's marriage or whether it's a better marriage, whether it's children, grandchildren, a better job, more education, a goal or career goal, whatever it might be. We think that if we can apprehend that thing, we will be happy. So we rearrange our lives going after it. And that increases loneliness because that's what's creating the fragmentation, moving place to place and uprooting life and switching churches, switching jobs, switching homes for the next best thing, the next thing, the next thing. When we get on a quest for the next thing, treasuring that, thinking that we can define ourselves by that or get happy by that, and then we miss the true treasure of all, which is really the simplicity of Christ himself, of life in him, of discipleship in Jesus. And that's when that is our treasure, when we're treasuring him above everything else, it doesn't mean we still don't have goals and dreams. It just, again, puts them in their right perspective. Yeah. I mean, you even asked the question, like, why can't we fix our loneliness? I mean, we try so hard. (laughs) We do try, but we're trying the wrong way. Right. And what we don't recognize is that, you know, I do think that the Lord, he created us with a capacity to feel loneliness so that we would reach out to find the remedy for that. We're designed for relationship horizontally, but primarily vertically. So instead of trying to apprehend it from what this world offers, recognize that that hole inside was part of how God hardwired us to find our all in Him. We, We are complete in union with Christ. If we can remember that and fix our gaze there, that's where we're going to find everything we've ever been looking for. That's good. In fact, that's a that's a great place to kind of stop. Lydia, it's been a really fascinating conversation. One of the things that I hope our listeners realize is that loneliness is no respecter of persons, can invade any heart, but ultimately the answer, we have a common answer in our union with Christ, and this has been a it's been a helpful and encouraging conversation. And so I want to thank our guest, Lydia Brownback. Now, Lydia is a author of a number of books and some really wonderful Bible studies that she is the author of. And take advantage of what she has and what she continues to write. We are going to be giving away two of Lydia's books. If you'll go to mortificationofspin.org, we're going to be giving away a copy of Fine China is for Single Women Too, which is published by PNR as well as Lydia's newest book, Finding God in My Loneliness, which is published by Crossway. I also want to remind you that Mortification of Spin is a donor-sponsored program. The Alliance relies on the donations of kind people like you uh, to keep this program going. And if you would feel so inclined as to go to mortificationofspin.org and place a donation 
to keep the program going, that would be much appreciated. And again, as you're there, enter our drawing for one of these two books by our guest today, Lydia Brownback. Well, we're so glad that you all joined us, and we'll look forward to speaking to you again for Mortification of Spin. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. One of my lines when my wife and I were dating was, I said, hey, what's that on your face? <laughs> oh, that's beauty. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, she's yeah. still married. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Because oh, I'm awesome. So were you like 13 when you met her? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Good grief. Excuse me, ma'am. What's that on your face? <laughs> oh, I know. It's beauty. <laughs> there you go. Did she slap you? <laughs> no, she, she did laugh. She knew it was cheesy.